Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to come together and worship and fellowship. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit fill this room, that you'll lift our hearts, Lord, and that you'll open our ears and our hearts to hear your word, and that I pray that you'll be with Alan as he brings the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are uh, continuing our uh, series in the epistle, uh, the epistles, first and second uh, epistles to the Thessalonians. And uh, this morning we come to a section that I think is going to immediately grab your attention because we're talking today about sex, all right? And the reason we are is as Paul is now writing back uh, to this church that he started, he's reminding them that God has called them out of the values of their surrounding culture. And he's called them into the new values of the kingdom of God. And he's particularly in, in this, these sections reminding them of three specific areas where God's kingdom values are in radical contrast to the surrounding culture. And, and it really centers in on the, their views of sex, of work, and of death, dying. And so we're going to be working our way through those subjects over the next few weeks and see what Paul here is reminding them and what he's reminding us here this morning is that Christians are radically different in these three areas from our surrounding culture. You know, with death, for example, uh, the Greeks and the Roman people, they were stunned with how the Christians faced death, singing their way to the lions, rejoicing as they were being killed, and it just blew them away. They'd never seen anyone react to death like this before. And the same was true of their views of sex and money. There was an early Christian letter that circulated in the early days of the church. It dates back uh, to the second century where the writer, uh, he, it's an incredible letter. There's just one little section out of it. He, what he says in that, uh, as he's describing what the early church was like, um, he said, what makes us stand out as a people in our culture is how we share our table with all, but not our bed with all. See, the pagans shared their beds with everybody because sex was common. It was a mundane thing. But they rarely shared their table. They rarely shared their, their money, their resources, because money was sacred, whereas sex was mundane. But you see, Christians were expected to be just the opposite. Sex was something that was to be sacred for Christians. But their money 
was to be mundane. It was supposed to be something they could easily give away. And eventually, these pagan views brought down the great Roman Empire, just as I think it's in the process of bringing down the great American Empire. Because the values that Paul is critiquing from that culture are the very same values that our culture celebrates today. Because, listen, the simple facts are clear. People give away far less money than they used to. And people are having far more sex than they used to with a wider variety of people. It's common. And while those pagan values were bringing down the Roman Empire, the new Christian values that were laughed at by the surrounding culture eventually swept through the entire world as people began to see the wisdom of it. And so Paul is writing back to these folks because he knows that they're going to be living in a society that's going to be laughing at their new values. And he's going to, they're going to mock their, particularly their views on sex. And so he warns them. In fact, he says, I warn you sternly, you guys have got to remember this. Please don't lose what is so unique and revolutionary about the new selves, the new heart, the new character that God has given to you. I know it's tempting to take on the values of your surrounding culture, just like it's very tempting for us to take on the values of our culture today. And he's reminding us here that we are agents of change, agents of hope for real transformation for the surrounding culture. And, you know, I think it's ironic that our, our modern culture tends to be so proud of itself for being sexually free and modern and enlightened and sophisticated, when in reality they're simply going back to the way the Roman Empire thought 2,000 years ago, to values that have a proven track record of destroying that advanced civilization. And so really the question that I want us to grapple with here together this morning as we approach this subject is, are you being squeezed into the mold of the dominant culture around you, or are you having a revolutionary impact upon it? So let's get into seeing what the Christian view of sex really is. And the first thing that I want you to see here is how the Bible talks about the goodness of sex. How the Bible lifts up sex is a great thing. Because you notice how this passage starts out. It says, verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And the word sanctified means to be holy. And how does God want us to be holy? How are you made holy? Are you, you're, you're made holy by abstaining from sex? No, it's not what he says. He says to abstain from immorality. And immorality is the improper use of sex. In other words, what he's saying here is that sex improperly used will undermine your holiness. But sex used properly is actually a way to be holy. Now, how in the world does that work? It's not something we usually keep in our head together, sex and holiness. But listen, there, there are two main traditional views of sex that have been given down through history, broad categories, uh, one in which people have deified sex. In fact, many of the ancient religious practices actually had sex as part of the religious ceremonies of how you approached God. And of course, we, we don't use that today, but you, you can still see the deification of sex and how advertisers sell their products or in how TV shows and movies always push this up front and center or in all their episodes because sex sells, right? Sex is the way to wisdom. Sex is the way to joy. Sex is the way to happiness. And if nothing else, sex is certainly a way to get viewers. And so that's the first traditional 
view of sex. You deify, you make a God out of it. It's gonna save your life. The second traditional understanding of sex is just its opposite, and that is it's to degrade sex. And, and I think we have to be honest that down through the years, Christians probably more than any other group have been known for thinking of sex as something that is uh, dirty, uh, animalistic, uh, base, uh, disgusting, something to be kept hidden in the quiet corners of the bedroom. But the, the Bible actually upholds neither one of these views. In fact, if you actually read what the Bible says about sex, it can be downright confusing because there, there are places where the Bible is incredibly erotic and celebratory of sex. I mean, if half the stuff that already makes you blush about the Song of Solomon were actually translated with the intent of the Hebrew idioms in place, you probably wouldn't let your kids have a Bible or you'd rip that section out of it. It is shamelessly erotic and celebratory of the sexual bedroom because there's barefaced rejoicing in erotic married love. And yet we see other places in the Bible where there are so many negative things to say about sex. Flee from sexual immorality. Keep yourself sexually pure. Don't even entertain lustful thoughts and all those commands. And so it's really easy to get confused about what God says about sex. But listen, the, the Bible does two particular things with sex that no other religion or philosophy does. In fact, no other religion or philosophy even attempts to do this. First of all, the Bible demystifies sex. See, the Bible never whispers when it comes to sex. It's not something embarrassing to talk about behind closed doors. But neither does it glorify sex as a means of self-fulfillment or salvation. See, the Bible never says that sex is a way to ultimate joy and satisfaction in life. But then, and this is really the crazy part, after Christianity demystifies sex, it then remystifies it with a new biblical understanding as it tells us that none of us can really understand just how powerful that sex can be and how much potential that it has for healing and rest and therefore, as a result, how much potential it has for destruction and for ugliness if it's used improperly. Because you see, most people use sex simply for self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction, essentially for selfishness, right? Which destroys the beauty of sex and it destroys the dignity of the people who are involved with it. But the, the Bible says that sex used properly, it can bring you glory. It can sanctify you. It can make you holy. See, that's the whole point of this passage. See, as crazy as it sounds, what Paul is clearly saying here is that the proper use and understanding of sex can make you holy. If used properly, sex has a power within it that you can't even dream of. And that sex that's used improperly, which the word here is in Greek is pornea. You know what that word means, right? It, it destroys everything that it touches. And there isn't another religion or philosophy that even claims the level of power and goodness and beauty that Christianity has towards sex. That it can actually lead to your sanctification and to your holiness. So that's the potential goodness of sex. But here's the second thing, and that is sex always has a context to it. It has to have a context. 
See, we often say that for sex, women need a reason and men just need a place. But the, the Bible actually says that there's a deeper context than even that. And that's where we get to this very strange section in verse 4 where uh, Paul, after he says, you should avoid sexual immorality, he goes on to say this, and that each of you should learn to control your own body. It's a very difficult passage to translate because there are other, you may have a different version there, and it says that each of you should learn to live with your own wife. Now, how in the world can you get such radically different translations out of the same passage? Uh, And literally what it says in the Greek is that each of you should learn how to maintain control over his own vessel. And of course, the wife is often referred to by Paul as the weaker vessel. And especially when it's combined with the other word in the sentence, it's that word that is translated learn to control. It literally means to obtain or to acquire. So go get a vessel, all right, is what it's talking about. Now, here's the point, I think, of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when it comes to sex, there's only two options available. You, you can either learn to control your body by taking a wife, and he is talking primarily to men here, all right? And you can use sex properly within marriage. Or if you don't do that, the only other option with sex is immorality, pornea. And it's referring to the general misuse of sex. And what he's saying is you can either be involved in pornea or you can enjoy married sex. And those are the only two options. Now, I, I know the NIV likes to modernize things, and they do here by saying brothers and sisters as he's addressing people in this passage. But I I really think here, um, at least here, this is primarily talking to men. Uh, The original Greek just says brothers. They interpret it as brothers and sisters, but I think it's talking to men. Not that the principle doesn't translate to women as well, but I think um, historically and certainly physiologically, men are the ones most prone to abusing women for their own sexual satisfaction. And, And I honestly think there's a play on words here that he chooses the word instrument as something that men are supposed to control because he could have been more specific in talking about your wife is the way to control that. Or he could have been more specific to refer to your body as what you need to control, but he didn't. He simply told men to control their instruments and I'll, I'll just leave that one there. But, but listen, fr- from cover to cover, the, the Bible says that sex is only for marriage. It's not something to be engaged in before marriage. It's not something to be used outside of marriage. It's not something to be used in dating or for casual fun. And there are no exceptions. The Bible's clear. But when it says that, I want you to listen to the deeper thing that it's actually saying behind that. Because what it's saying is marriage is the only place where sex actually works the way that it's supposed to. And how it's supposed to work, we're going to get it back to in a minute. I'll leave you hanging for a moment. But listen, I, I, I know in our surrounding culture, that sounds like a very narrow fundamentalistic view. And some people will view that as sexually repressive or old-fashioned, certainly not enlightened. But I do just want to point out here that this has been the historic view of all Christian and all Orthodox and all Catholic churches for centuries. Not only that, this is the accepted view of Judaism. It's the accepted view of Hinduism. It's the accepted view of Islam. They all agree that sex outside of marriage goes against its design. In fact, it's one of the few things they all do agree on. And of course, they all have different reasons for why. Because, you know, besides 
the biblical rationale for sex, which we're going to get to here in a minute. There are also many practical reasons for holding this view of sex. You know, sex outside of marriage has always been harder on women than it has been for men. Lots of women have been abused by the sexual hungers of the men that they've been with. You know, for example, it was very normal uh, and, and accepted in Paul's day for a man uh, to be having sex regularly with three, four, or five different women, um, not at the same time, but over the same period of time. You know, it was just part of male privilege in that society. Most men had their wives, whose job was to bring them respect and money, uh, to be the mother of their legitimate children. Then he was also allowed to have his mistress, who was more his intellectual equal. She was a companion who could match his wits. And then he also had his own concubines, a variety of servants that he could use for sex whenever he felt like it. And then there were also the prostitutes who were often used in the religious ceremonies. And, and see, it was very normal for a man to be having sex with all these women and yet be responsible for none of them. And Paul is writing back to these people and he's saying, guys, I know that this is the norm in your culture, but Christians are now done with all of that. Men, you can only have sex with one woman, your wife, which means by implication, she is the one who's supposed to embody all of this. She is to be your best friend. She is to be your lover. She is to be your intellectual equal. She is to be your companion and the mother of your children. See, she's, she's supposed to be the one who contains all of this together. And why? Because from a practical point of view, this is the only way to empower women, which by the way, Christianity did better than any other religion. Because listen, extramarital sex almost always benefits men at the expense of women. And this biblical view empowers women to be the full companions of their husbands as an equal and not just as a sex toy. But then secondly, I, I think the other practical benefit is this is obviously what's best for children to have one stable mother figure in their lives. But having said all that, even though there are many practical reasons for this, the Bible is not therefore saying that sex outside of marriage is wrong because it's impractical, that it, it abuses women and it's hard on kids. Rather, it's saying it's impractical because it's wrong. And it's wrong because it violates something about God and his design that he implanted within us. See, he says, this is God's will for your sanctification. And it's not the way the pagans who, notice verse five, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And I think this is really the heart of what Paul is telling us here, that the pagan view, and, and don't think of ancient religions, anybody who doesn't believe in God, right, will classify as pagan at this point, that the pagan view of sex outside of marriage separates a whole body commitment from the sexual act. And that is something that is never supposed to happen, ever. See, he says they don't know God, so they offer their bodies to one another, but not their whole selves. See, I, I freely give myself to you, my body to you, but not my name, not my protection, not my money, not my assets, not my heart and soul, just my body. And I think what this does, it leads us to understand, therefore, the core biblical ethic of sex. And that is that you must never separate body and soul. 
That's why elsewhere Paul says to, to not have sex with a prostitute because now you become one with her. And how can you become one with her when she's not your wife and she's with all these other men? That can't be. See, it's a whole body commitment and a whole life commitment. It's a package deal. And you can never separate the two, ever. Now, why? Well, it certainly is practical, sure. But, but ultimately, the reason is because this is how God does it. Because we're made after his image. See, what Paul is telling us here is that pagans don't know how to have intimacy and commitment bound together. Because they don't know God. See, if they knew God, they would understand that you simply can't do that. And because they don't know God, they think it's okay to have intimacy without commitment. They think it's okay to give your body away, but not your full self. But with God, there's intimacy and there's always commitment. And if you want total intimacy, you've got to have total commitment. And see, if this is who God is, in his relationships, why would it be any different from those people who've been made after his very image? And see, Paul is saying that you must keep sex inside of marriage because it's theological. I mean, of course, it's practical, right? Of course, it's bad for society. Of course, it's abusive to women. Of course, it's destructive to kids. But at its core, it violates who God is. And that's why it's wrong. And that's why it's impractical. I mean, listen to the grand story of the Bible. From cover to cover, God says, I will come down and I will penetrate you and I will put my love within you, but you must commit yourself to me wholeheartedly. Otherwise, you'll be committing adultery with other gods and there can be no other God besides me. See, God says, I sent my son to be a living sacrifice for you. So you must be a living sacrifice for me. And there's never that kind of intimacy without that kind of commitment. And he never asked for that kind of commitment without that level of intimacy. And so Paul says here, sex is either going to be immorality, it's gonna be ugly, it's gonna be abusive, or it's gonna be beautiful and redemptive marital love. And see, I mean, deep down, everybody knows this. Even sexually liberated pagans know that having sex without commitment rips apart the body and soul. I mean, just listen to any of the TV shows and movies where, you know, people are good friends and they say, you know, we probably shouldn't have sex, not because it's wrong, but because we don't want to destroy our friendship. And as soon as we have sex, our friendship's out the window. It changes everything. Even sexually liberated people recognize the danger of that. Even sexually liberated people understand that when you say, I want your body, but I don't want you, it's degrading and it's demeaning and it destroys the bonds of commitment because they're taken out of the equation up front. And so I, I really don't love you. Frankly, I don't even want you. I just want to use you to service my own needs and desires. And then I'll discard you and move on to the next. I mean, any of you remember college? It's kind of was like for a lot of people. And so you see, the Bible comes along here and it, and it tells us why all this sexual liberation feels so abusive. Because keeping body and soul together are the very nature of what God designed us to be after his own image. And so that's the way we work. It's the way we're designed. It's the way we function. 
So, now that we have all that under our belts, I think it's becoming a bit clearer what the Bible says that the purpose of sex is really all about. Paul tells us that sex outside of marriage doesn't work the way that it was designed to work because of how it separates the body and soul. But before we get into this, I want you to notice the words here in verses three and four. God wants sex to sanctify you, to make you holy. So therefore, take a wife in honor, not in lust. Which means that you can take a wife in lust and not in honor. You can violate the designed purpose of sex even within the boundaries of a biblical marriage. See, it's possible, and frankly, it happens very often, to abuse and take advantage of your spouse sexually, even within marriage. See, Paul here is, is forbidding lust within marriage as well as outside of marriage, right? And if you've been around here for a while, you'll be struck, I think, with the word that Paul uses here when he's talking about this. He uses the word for lust, epithemia. It's a word that means over-desire, usually translated lust, sometimes idolatry. And, and he's saying that it's possible to have sex within marriage and still hold on to an idolatrous lust. I mean, especially for men who often have a deeper drive for it. Because, and, and I'll let you in on a little secret if you haven't figured this one out yet. Men need sex to feel secure, whereas women need to feel secure to have sex. And since we men are constantly insecure, we run to sex over and over again to fill our hearts up with that assurance that we need. And so we can easily run to that selfishly and even aggressively from a heart that is all about me. But if you understand what Paul is telling us here about sex, God designed it to be a reverent, trembling, holy, awe-inspiring thing that stops looking to any of my needs and any of my wants and any of my desires and seeks only to build the other up and to so fill them with dignity and love and acceptance to be totally exposed and, and fully vulnerable and yet accepted. And as a result, it begins to humanize them in a way that pornea sex will dehumanize you. Listen, the biblical purpose of sex is to see each other at our most vulnerable and there not only to find acceptance and value, but to be honored and adored and poured into selflessly until your spouse begins to feel fully human once again, fully themselves once again. Now listen, besides the problem of men just being selfish with sex and filling their own insecure needs that way, there, there are actually several other ways that you can take a spouse in lust. And I'm hoping that this will be a little bit more of a help to some of you singles out there with this. For example, if you're looking to a potential mate and you say, I'm a mess and this person can save me. Or as the old adage goes, you're nobody until somebody loves you. If you pursue that person, you're in it for yourself, not for them. And you will put constant pressure on them, if you do get married, to never fail at loving you, to always be able to express that love in ways that sexually satisfy your needs. And they'll have to always be on, always okay, always ready. And they will feel so emotionally smothered and manipulated that they will feel used instead of honored and built up. 
Now, another way that you can pursue a spouse in lust is to say, well, I'm really only sexually attracted to this person. I'm not really interested in their intellect or their partnership in life. She's just hot, all right? Or he's a hunk. Listen, you can't talk to that kind of person about your problems. You don't admire them. You don't look up to them. They're not your best friend. And so your sex is not an expression of honor, but it's an expression of selfishness. And of course, that means there's another way of marrying in lust, and that's simply to marry somebody who needs you, and you're always trying to fix them. But even there, your sex will be in lust and not in honor. Because listen, the purpose of sex in marriage lies in this. There is nothing that makes you feel more cherished and more valued and more filled with dignity than another person who binds themselves to you permanently and exclusively and then takes off all their clothes to be fully vulnerable with you where there's no hiding, there's no pretense, there's no performance, there's no agenda other than just to serve you and to build you up because your heart needs someone to be fully attracted to the deepest parts of who you really are without all the spin, without all the hype, to see you for who you really are and to say, I am committed to you as long as we both shall live. Listen, great sex with great friendship can produce tremendous power, power to heal your hurts, power to cancel all the voices of shame in your head. Listen, if, if everybody your whole life told you that you were ugly or that you were a loser, that you'd never amount to anything, it only takes one word from your spouse of I love you and I'm committed to you, cemented by the bonds of sex. It'll make you feel like a king or queen and all those years of hurt can be erased. That's the power that it has. There is tremendous power in sexual love that honors the bonds of commitment. You can build up and honor that person in ways that can transform them as you remind them of their value, of their worth, of their beauty, of their dignity. Listen, do you have a deep honor and respect for your spouse? And can you be fully vulnerable to them sexually as a sign of that love and commitment? They go together. Because listen, as we said last week, the, the whole purpose of a biblical marriage is that you learn to see in your spouse or your potential spouse, if you're out there looking, you see all the beauty that they will become when God finally heals them of all their brokenness. All of their fears, all of their weaknesses, all of their insecurities, they are gonna be so beautiful when God takes all of that away and I'm drawn to that. And I'm, I'm willing to commit together with God to walk them day by day to the throne of God. And you say, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna honor you in that way. And you do that with a sexual friendship within the bonding commitments of a marriage. And I think that's what the purpose of sex is all about. Nothing will make a person feel more honored than that. And of course, its opposite is just as true as well. Nothing makes you feel more dishonored, cheap, sleazy, used, whatever words you want to use, than, than taking the intimacy of sex outside of the bonds of that lifelong commitment. Because you see, that, that's why sex only really works the way it's supposed to within marriage. If someone is interested in taking off all their clothes and offers themselves to you, but isn't interested in marriage and doesn't want a lifelong commitment, what you're really saying is, you really don't mean the world to me. You're just useful to me at the moment. 
Listen, the whole purpose of sex is to reverence and to honor somebody else. And unless that's done within the cementing bonds of a marriage, it's a lie, right? (laughs) Because you don't honor them. You don't reverence them. You're just using them. But in the context of marriage, in an honoring friendship, where you see what God is doing in your spouse and you say, I so admire you and I want to be partners with you in this journey. And when you use sex to express that, the sky is the limit to where it can take you. See, it's not enough to be friends and fail to be sexually responsive to each other. And it's not enough to be sexually responsive to each other and fail to be friends and affirm and honor. They they have to go together. It's a package deal. Now, for those of you who are single, this shows you the goal of what you're aiming for. This kind of relationship is what you should be looking for. Because if the main thing in your life that can screw up your sex life is idolatry, then the only possible way that you'll be ready for marriage is if you're not in despair that you're not married yet. See, if you think your life is ruined because you're not married, then your life will be ruined when you do get married because it's just idolatry. It's just lust. And listen, as we close here, I I want you to notice one final reason why God calls us to this kind of sexual fidelity. And he does so because I think sex, like every other good, good gift that God has given to us, is merely a reflection of something deeper and more beautiful. See, sex works because another person has access to all of you. The, the uncovered you, the, the unfiltered you. They see it all and they're still in, right? They, they haven't walked away. And it's being seen and yet loved that gives sex such power. But, but even sex is just a pointer to something far better and, and far greater. Because the Bible tells us that sex is just a picture of how God relates to us. Because God sees us even more deeply than our naked bodies. He sees us all the way to the bottom of our very souls. He sees everything, all of our selfish motives, all of our lustful thoughts, all of our deepest desires for life and happiness. He sees all the hidden junk that lies deep within our hearts. And he loves us anyway. Being exposed and honored before the eyes of your spouse is just a picture. And it's an imperfect picture of how God sees you and how God loves you in a far, far deeper way. And if you know that, it can bring healing and rest in far deeper ways. Now, that is incredible news for us this morning for two particular reasons. First of all, it means that single people don't have to miss out on all the blessings of joy and joys of sex that we've been talking about here. You don't have to miss out on a thing. You may not have access to the limited pictures of this in physical sex, but you do have access to the deeper spiritual exposure and acceptance that even the best sex is merely pointing to. So everything I've talked about here today is for you too. But secondly, I think this is great news because it means that our spouse's ability to receive and experience unconditional love doesn't depend on how well I can love them even when I'm selfish in sex, even if you've misused sex and allowed porn into your bedroom, even if you've been unfaithful to your spouse sexually, there is room for healing and redemption because your sexual expressions of love are merely a pointer to what their heart ultimately needs. And though you should and you must 
work very hard to be a better pointer of this for their hearts, the pressure is off to be perfect at it because we all still have Jesus, our perfect lover who never fails us, who never abuses us, who never takes advantage of us. And with that pressure gone, we not only have the freedom to fail in what sex is supposed to be bringing to our spouse, but we also have the context for redemption that it can be healed and it can be put right again and that the hurts of the past can be forgiven and we can learn to move forward together in the knowledge that we've already got the ultimate lover of our souls. So let's work together at being better at mimicking that. It's no secret that sex has an incredible power to bring life, an incredible power to destroy life. And God asks us here to use it wisely and carefully, but use it prolifically as a way to honor and build up our spouse. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our weakness, help us in our selfishness, help us in our context of a world that celebrates sex for all the wrong reasons. We need your help to be rescued from our warped views that have brought pain and heartache and destruction. And Lord, I pray especially this morning for those who have experienced sexual abuse for all the hurts and the pains that even hearing this brings up. Lord, I pray that you would point them to the hope of redemption that is brought by the fact that there is always a deeper beauty that is available to us all today. May our hearts be drawn toward that so that sex can be a good pointer and never an end in itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.